0: Where would we go, our Father, for help? Except to our sure and steady anchor. There's no place else. The Apostle will say this morning in the passage we're looking at that certainly our sufferings and our afflictions, our trials, our tribulations are abundant Your word and you do not minimize the difficulty of living in this world. But he reminds us of the confident hope that whatever, however abundant our trials are, so abundant is Christ. He's fully adequate for every trial and all of every trial. And so we come to Christ the sure and steady anchor in the fury of our storms. Might you hold us up this morning? Might you encourage us? Some are weak, and burdened by the difficulties of this world. Some are broken by the temptations of this world. And there is comfort for both. Some of us may not be feeling either of those pulls at the moment, but we certainly have in the past. And you have placed us here so that we might comfort others who are afflicted. And might we have equipping to do that from what we, ha- what we hear this morning. Oh, Father, would you change us today? And would you make us hopeful? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a pastor and theologian in Germany in the 1930s and 40s. He not only was opposed to the doctrine of Nazism, but he was one of the few pastors in that day in Germany who was willingly willing to publicly oppose Hitler and his regime. His vocalism against Hitler placed him into leadership in what became called what uh, what was ultimately called the Confessing Church of Germany. At the same time as well, he founded an underground seminary in Finkenwald, Bavaria, a seminary that was later closed by the Gestapo chief Heinrich Himmler. Bonhoeffer then joined the resistance movement, was ultimately arrested and imprisoned in Germany by the Gestapo in April 1943. He continued to serve the church even from prison by writing, and his letters that he wrote from prison were ultimately compiled into a volume titled, Strategically Enough, Letters from Prison, which became a bestseller after the war. Among the letters he wrote is a poem for his fiancée, Maria von Weidemeyer, entitled New Year's 1945, obviously, when he wrote it. New Year's 1945. The third stanza reads this way. Should it be ours to drain the cup of grieving even to the dregs of pain at thy command we will not falter thankfully receiving all that is given by thy loving hand. Those words of humble acceptance of God's providence over suffering were followed by his execution three months later in the Flossenburg prison. He was martyred by hanging on April 9, 1945. V.E. Day came 30 days later, May 8, 1945. It just almost seems pointless, doesn't it? So tragic. It begs the question about suffering and what God is working in our suffering. Is it, is it as unfair and as pointless as it seems at times? Yes, suffering is hard. The kinds of persecutions God's people have endured in history and are enduring even now are often bitter, harsh, severe. But suffering is not unfair. Hear me. Suffering is not pointless. This year we're thinking about how to excel still more in the calling that God has given to us as a church. As we are growing both numerically and spiritually, how can we persist in faithfulness to the Lord and maintain the distinctiveness of, of who God has made us as a church. As we grow and as we mature, we don't want to lose the things that have marked our ministry for God's, for God's glory and have reflected Him preeminently in us. We want to excel in our spiritual life as a church. We want to excel, even as we noted earlier this year, particularly in loving one another. We have, we've loved one another well. That's our reputation in the community. Uh, We we do that well. But, brothers and sisters, we not only don't want to slack off, we want to excel still more. And for the next two weeks, we're going to think together of this theme, particularly of excelling spiritually. And this morning, we want to relate that theme of excelling still more to the issue of suffering, affliction, difficulty by looking at... Paul's opening verses in his last letter to the Corinthians. And what we're going to discover in chapter 1 in these opening seven verses is that in suffering, we receive God's comfort and at the same time are equipped to share God's comfort with others. He ministers to us in our affliction. He graces us with comfort, with joy, with strength, with endurance, With transformation and he prepares us to serve others who are suffering similarly and walk with them through their affliction. As we look at these opening verses, Paul will reveal four realities about suffering and comfort. Four realities about suffering and comfort. As we begin this... Let me just remind you about the background in which Paul was writing this letter. Corinth itself was a city that was known particularly for its worldliness. But even in its worldliness, there were things that were going on in the Corinthian church that even the world couldn't tolerate. And so there was a man who was living in an incestuous relationship with his stepmother. It was going on in the church the church was well aware of it and they were doing nothing about it. And so Paul wrote them a letter about that situation. He refers to that letter in 1 Corinthians 5, though that letter was lost. We don't have that letter. The Corinthians responded to that letter that Paul wrote, evidently with something less than repentance. And so... Um, Paul responded to that letter with another letter, again calling them to repentance, and that is the letter that we know as 1 Corinthians. That letter wasn't received well by certain factions within the Corinthian church, and so false teachers became even more prominent And not just lauding this man and ignoring his sin, but they began attacking the apostle Paul and attacking his apostleship. Who is Paul to tell us what to do in essence? And so Paul left Ephesus and went to Corinth for what he later called his painful visit to confront them in their sin. And then after leaving them, he wrote another letter, which he refers to in 2 Corinthians as a severe letter. And that letter also was lost. We don't have that. So if you're counting, that's three letters of which we only have one so far. Paul was anxious for news about the Corinthian church how are they responding to his visit how are they responding to that severe letter and so he sent titus back to see them and then he met titus in macedonia and titus reported they have repented and they've dealt with the sin and they've repented of their attacks against you and so with joy and a little bit of trepidation paul writes another letter a fourth letter it is this letter second corinthians And so, as we come to this letter, we we need to come understanding that background, understanding that that the Corinthian church was in the midst of a very perverse culture. They were decadent. Um, They were known for horrific sexual sin, among other things. They were prosperous licentious, so they had money and they indulged all of their whims with their money. And because of that, the church had been infiltrated with this incestuous man and his relationship. And the church was unwilling to do anything with it. And then they rebelled against Paul. All that is in the background of these words. That opened this last letter from Paul. And what's he going to tell them? Verse 3. He's going to tell them. That God is a comforter. You know when people suffer. The temptation is to denigrate. His character and nature. He doesn't know. He doesn't care. He's not able. He's opposed to me. And this. Opening address, this opening blessing corrects that ungodly thinking. Notice what he says, verse 3. The very first thing that he says to this church that has lived in such sin and in such rebellion, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. When he says blessed be, he is not saying, I really hope God is blessed. I really hope God attains to this position. And he's not saying, I am granting God this position of blessing. I am making him blessed. That's not what he's saying. He is acknowledging that God is the source of blessing. And it comes through him in a variety of means. And he points to three sources of God's blessing by pointing to three attributes, three parts of God's nature, as it were. First, he says, he is the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I think in this section, as we make our way through it, we're going to see him come back to this theme about Jesus Christ, Christ's work, Christ's cross, our salvation repeatedly. But it seems that I think the Apostle, when he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus, he is thinking particularly about the final end of the work of Christ. So what is it that Christ's work finally accomplishes? Notice verse 8. We do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction, which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively even beyond our strength, so that we would be spared even of life Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves so that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. There's the final end. Not just that Christ himself was resurrected after the cross and after the crucifixion, but that because Christ is raised, we also are raised with him. That's our hope. And it comes to us only through Jesus Christ And Christ comes to us only through the work of the Father in heaven. So it's the Father's plan to send the Son, and the Son accomplishes redemption, and that is His blessing towards us, His gift towards us. There's a second means by which He blesses God, affirms God's blessing towards us in this verse, and that is He says He is the Father of mercies. By which He means He is the Father of mercy. That is, He is the source of mercy. He is the originator of mercy. It is it is in His nature to be merciful. He cannot be anything but merciful. And He does so as a loving Father. Oh, the Scriptures are just crammed with this truth. Let me just draw your attention to one psalm. Psalm 103, the Lord, verse 8, is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. He, he is compassionate towards weak and sinful people. He, he looks at us And He understands our plight. He understands our weakness. He understands that we have a propensity to move towards the flesh. He understands the battle with sin. And He is merciful towards us. He doesn't condemn us immediately and send us to hell immediately as would be His right because He's merciful. He understands. Verse 13, same Psalm 103. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Even as I read those words, I think about two-year-old Elizabeth. And I won't tell you how old she is now, but it was decades ago that she was two. And um, she'd been given a balloon, and the balloon burst. And so... I don't remember who, but the bur- somebody tossed the balloon in the garbage and she went to the garbage and she picked that balloon up out of the garbage and she brought me the balloon and she said, Daddy, thickets, <laughs> can't do it. My compassion said I would like to take that balloon and put it back together and put air in it and hand it back to her. I couldn't do it. But the Father in heaven, who is compassionate, can fix it. And he does. Notice verse 17 of that same psalm. The loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear them. Excuse me, fear him. From everlasting to everlasting. From eternity to eternity. You can't even say, like, from when eternity began, because it never began. It's always been. Friends, God has had mercy on you always. Before there was anything, before there was any world, before there was any time, He was merciful towards you, knowing His creation of you. And He always will be. This is the Father of mercies. Thirdly, the Apostle tells us that He is the God of all comfort. If there's comfort to be found anywhere, it's found in God. He is the source of all comfort. Now, when I think about comfort, I think about a recliner, I think about my feet propped up, I think about a book, I think about a ball game, and my wife's macaroni and cheese. It's not that craft stuff. I mean, it's it's really good. That's comfort. That's not the kind of comfort here. That's temporal. God's comfort is not a temporal comfort, but it is an eternal comfort. And ongoing comfort where he ministers to and changes our souls. The word that's translated here as comfort in verse 3 might also be translated elsewhere as helper or encourager. It's used about personal relief, about support, about help. What's notable here is that God is merciful, that's the second phrase, and that mercy by which he sees our plight compels him to comfort us he comforts us in our need i did a little bit of digging around this week about that word that word comfort is used 29 times in the new testament so fairly frequently but not it's not like it's hundreds of times 29 times 20 times it's used by paul so A little over two-thirds of the time, Paul's the one that's using it. So we would say it's a particularly Pauline word. He uses it way more than any of the other New Testament writers. What's even more notable is that he uses it 12 times in the Corinthian letters, 11 times in this letter. Over one-third of the uses of that word are in this letter to that church. And six times... It is used in verses 3 through 7. In verses 3 through 7, a church that has been antagonistic to him, that he has had to rebuke and compel and call them to repentance, he is now ministering the comfort of God to. Not hopeful. For you and your situation, whatever your trial, whatever your struggle, God is the one who is coming to administer comfort to you. And not only does God comfort, but he has placed his spirit whose name is comforter. Same word, John 15, excuse me, John 14 that we read earlier. Same word. He has placed him in us to be a perpetual manifestation of his comfort to us. So, one commentator writes, No loss is too deep, no sorrow or pain too great, for the overwhelming and transcendent comfort that God freely gives us in Christ. Oh, brothers and sisters, I don't know what your particular ache is today, but I know Christ is enough. He's adequate for you. When you're suffering, be sure you're aligning your thoughts about God to Scripture's revelation. What this book that we hold in our hands says about God is true. This is the truth about God's ministry to us and what our heart often says and often is inclined to do when we are hurting and suffering and questioning is often misaligned with this book. Just make sure that you're realigning your heart and your desires and your longing to this book because this is the truth. So when you're suffering, to think about what Paul says here about God and His nature, ask yourself three questions. When you're suffering, are you consciously thinking about the final end of your salvation in Christ? Or have you become so wrapped up in the immediate decision, in the immediate problem, that you forget what lies ahead? I had to remind myself of that this week, wrestling through a decision and just saying, you know, I'm assuming in 25 years I'm going to be in heaven. It's all a moot point. I can trust Him, He'll see me through. Second question, when suffering, are you remembering that God is compassionate to you? Are you remembering that he cares? Are you remembering that he has withheld his condemnation from you? He's kept you safe. And thirdly, when suffering, are you meditating on the fact the eternal God comes to you as the tender father to comfort you and give you peace? He comes alongside in the person of the spirit and in the the wisdom of His Word, He comes alongside you, the eternal God of the universe, as if you are the only person on earth to comfort you. Is that your meditation? And Paul would encourage us that that ought to be our meditation. God is our comforter, whatever our weakness. When does God comfort? He addresses that in verse 4. Who comforts us? In all our affliction, He comforts us in all our affliction. When there is affliction, God is comforting. When Paul talks about affliction, he is talking about pressures, he's talking about circumstances that are crushing. He uses this word, and the other New Testament writers use this word, to refer to distress, to opposition, to oppression, to tribulation, and to the tribulation in which God will pour out His wrath on mankind. Paul refers to these kinds of things, the the weights, the pressures, the burdens, at the end of this book, chapter 11. Are they servants of Christ, His opponents? I speak as if insane. In other words, this is, this is ridiculous that I need, need to bring this up about who I am and what God has accomplished through me. I speak as if insane. In far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I've spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from countrymen, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from such external things, there is the daily daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Who's weak without my being weak? Who's led into sin without my intense concern? That's what he's talking about. And in that affliction, notice what he says, verse 4, God comforts us in all our affliction. He's always there. Paul is not denigrating the sufferings of the world. He's not not saying, oh, it'll be okay, don't worry about it. Don't worry, be happy. That's not his song. He acknowledges the reality of suffering that comes from living in a fallen world, of living in a world where others sin against us and living in a world where we sin against others. And he is pointing to the reality that God is sufficient, that Christ is sufficient for those things. If others have sinned against you, even as the Corinthians sinned against the Apostle Paul, God is sufficient. You go to him. And you find your comfort in Him in the fact that He will make everything right about every sin. One thing happens, one of two things happens to every sin. Every sin either gets poured out on Jesus Christ and He atones for that sin by His death. Or every sin receives the wrath of God for all of eternity. No no sin escapes the justice of God. And if others have sinned against you, and they have, you don't need to fret. You don't need a pound of flesh because your pound of flesh does not compare to the eternal weight of God's wrath. He'll make it right. He already has, if that person's sin has been paid for by Christ, or He will. You can rest in that. You find your comfort in Him. Or, if you have sinned against others, find your comfort in repentance. One of my favorite verses in this book is seven eleven, Speaking about the Corinthians and what they did in repentance, he says, Behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow, has produced in you. What did they do in repentance? What vindication of yourselves? What indignation, anger against their sin? What fear, fear of God and His wrath? What longing, what, that is what longing for restoration? What zeal, that is what, what zealous pursuit of making things right? What avenging of wrong? They paid back their debt. And then he says this, in a most amazing statement, in everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. In everything. You demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. There's an innocence that can be had even when you have sinned, even sinned grossly against others. And that was where the Corinthians were in their repentance. And brother and sister, if you have sinned against others, find your comfort in repentance. God will make it right. To say that God comforts us in our affliction says that He comforts us just when we need it. Listen, his comfort may not be a removal out of the trouble. As far as we know, when Daniel went to Babylon, he never went back to Israel. And Daniel spent a night in a lion's den. Now I know, I know they were kept from attacking him. But when he was thrown in, don't you think that there was at least a flutter of what's going to happen? And all night long, Maybe by the end of the night he was petting them. I don't know. But he was there all night long and God didn't take him out. God may not move you out of the trouble, but he will grant you exactly what you need to endure it. We don't have time to unpack it, but go back to the first letter, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, and you'll see that reality. God is our comfort. And he comforts us in all of our affliction. Why does he do that? Why does God comfort us? First we'll see the middle of the verse, the purpose and universality of trouble. Notice the middle of verse 4. He comforts us in all our affliction so that, that tells us the purpose. Why does he comfort us? Because, so that, we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with a comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Now, what, what you may not see there immediately is that when Paul uses the personal pronoun we and us, it sounds like he's talking like me and Timothy and everybody that's with me and you, Corinthians. And so in verse 4, the temptation is to think he comforts us all so we all, including the Corinthians, will be able to comfort but Paul is thinking particularly about himself. Notice verse 7. He makes a distinction between him and the Corinthians. And he says, Our hope, me and Timothy, our hope for you is firmly granted, firmly grounded, knowing that as sharers of our sufferings, so also you, Corinthians, separate from me and Timothy, are sharers of our comfort. I think what he's saying in verse 4 is, as we... Paul particularly have suffered implication from you and your attacks and your lack of repentance. God has comforted us. Why? So that we in turn can come around and comfort and help and minister to you. And in what kind of circumstance will they be able to help the Corinthians so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any, not just any, but the word is more appropriately translated, every or all affliction. In other words, there's no affliction that goes beyond our ability to minister the comfort and the grace and the kindness of God. What I want you to notice, though, is the whole purpose of our suffering and our receiving comfort from God is so that there is equipping to comfort others. That's the goal. It's not just, well, I want Terry to feel good. It's so that Terry serves others with the comfort and the grace of Christ. So says one writer the comfort of God is channeled through people. Suffering, affliction, hardship is all common. I've had, I think, three conversations this morning about COVID. Who's had it? Who hasn't? What it's been like. It's common. And so is other illness and surgery and car accidents. Fires. We've thought about that this week. And high electrical bills. You don't have to say amen, just nod your head, yes. And inflation and difficult relationships and computer breakdowns and temptations and ostracism in the world, that's common. And the comfort of God is sufficient for all of those afflictions and He means to comfort us so that we'll go to others and say, let me point you to Jesus. Let me take you there. Brothers and sisters, that means that when we are hurting and when we are receiving the comfort of God through prayer, through the ministry of the Word, through the ministry of others to us, we need to be cognizant of that and aware of the gracious comfort that He is giving to us because we are stewards of it. We're a steward of grace. We're a steward of comfort. It's not just given to us to indulge our ease. It's given to us to minister to others. God also comforts us because of the nature of trouble. And we've alluded just a moment ago to the different kinds of sufferings, but there's a a particular kind of suffering that Paul identifies in this verse and in the next verse and elsewhere. Verse 5. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance. It's not just suffering in this world and all the stuff that comes from this world. He says there's a particular kind of suffering and affliction that comes from being identified with Jesus Christ. It's because of our belief and our identity in Jesus Christ that we are suffering the hardships that we're suffering he alludes to that again later in this book chapter four verse ten um uh, let me start in verse seven but we have this treasure in earthen vessels, the treasure of the gospel so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of god and not of ourselves because we are afflicted in every way but we are not crushed we are perplexed but not despairing we are persecuted but not forsaken struck down but not destroyed now notice verse ten Always caring about in the body the dying of Jesus. In my body and in the sufferings that I endure, there is something that correlates to the persecution of Jesus Christ that culminated in His death on the cross. I'm always carrying that about, Paul says. Why? So that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our body. Jesus didn't end at the cross. He ended at the resurrection and the ascension. And so we carry this death in us, the suffering and opposition and conflict from the world, but we also carry the life of Christ with us. For we, verse 11, chapter 4, We who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake. It's that identity with Christ that's causing people to persecute us. Why? So that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So we get persecuted, Christ gets exalted. And then he says in verse 12, So death works in us but life in you. I don't think that was lost on them. Paul suffered the afflictions that correlated to the afflictions that Christ experienced through the hand of the Corinthians and it produced life in the Corinthians. Paul said, if I have to die so that you live, I'll do it. That's the nature of our trouble Our trouble is that we live in this world where we are ostracized, condemned people oppose us. And even our own family, even our own friends, when we come to them with the gospel, they reject it. It's the suffering of Jesus. And what He wants us to see, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. He wants us to see that there's a particular kind of suffering that gets identified with Christ. And he wants us to hold on to the hope that Christ is going to be sufficient. And that's where he's going to take us next, to the extensiveness of comfort. Just how extensive is God's comfort of us? Notice the way he says it in verse 5, just as the sufferings of Christ are ours. So just as he's making a comparison, a comparison between the suffering that we have because of our identity with Christ, so also, uh, there's the back half of the comparison, our comfort is abundant through Christ. Sufferings are abundant. They exist in harshness and hardness in this world. And he says, Christ is is equal to the task. He's not insufficient. He's not weak. He's not hamstrung. Whatever you're suffering, He's enough for it. Whatever your ostracism, whatever your persecution, He's adequate to that task. Christ, is the answer to our sufferings. Notice that he particularly says, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. He comforts us by the ministry of Christ. So we suffer because of Christ and we're comforted through Christ. How does he comfort us through Christ? Uh, I think there are a lot of things in this passage that clue us into that. Um, he comforts us through salvation that gives us a clear conscience. That's verse 12. For our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially towards you. We've, we've conducted ourselves with holiness, sincerity, and wisdom because of God's grace in us. God clears the conscience through salvation. He comforts us. By the final gift of salvation. And the perspective that that brings. He has delivered us. Verse 10. From such a great peril of death. And he will deliver us. He on whom we have set our hope. And he will yet deliver us. He has delivered us. And he will deliver us. You can Take that to the bank. It comes through Christ. He comforts us by the prayers of the saints. You also, verse 11, in helping us through your prayers so that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the favor bestowed on us through the prayers of many, through the prayers of many among you. So the Corinthians prayed and they were comforted. He comforts us through reminders of His Word about His nature. We saw that particularly in verse 3, but it runs all the way through this passage. He comforts us through the indwelling of the Spirit of God who Christ gives to us. He comforts us by the use of the spiritual gifts that the Spirit grants to us through Christ's gift of Him to us. He comforts us by the ministry of presence of the saints who are with us in our trials. That's chapter 12 of his first letter. He comforts us from saving us from our sin and from his wrath. Listen, brother. Whatever you're suffering, he has met your need in Christ. You look to him. You look to the cross. You look to the throne of God where Christ has ascended and is seated. And he's adequate. What are the benefits of the troubles that we face in God's comfort? One, personal suffering is for corporate benefit. Personal suffering is for corporate benefit. What he says in verse 6 amplifies what he says in verse 4, right? Verse 4, he comforts us, God comforts us in all our afflictions, so we'll be able to comfort. He now amplifies that because if we, Paul and Timothy, are afflicted, It is for your Corinthian comfort and for your salvation. Or if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is effective in bringing about the patient enduring of the same things which we also suffer. Personal suffering, my suffering, Paul says, is for your corporate benefit. It's ultimately not just about me. My weights, my burdens, my pressures aren't just about me, it's about It's about how the world and the church observe me and my responses and they learn Christ through me. There are two particular benefits of Paul's sufferings for the Corinthians. He says, if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and your salvation. That is, comfort comes to the Corinthians through eternal salvation. He alludes to this in chapter 7, verse 10. All these things that that He had done to them to try and bring them to repentance, and and in the midst of all their opposition, finally they broke. 7.10, For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. You had a godly sorrow. It produced repentance. It led to your salvation. Paul says, if I have to suffer and it produces your salvation, that's a good trade. And some of our suffering is so that others will come to know Christ. I don't know how many times I've said it. I don't know how many times I've heard others say it at a funeral. You know, if it takes the death of this person to awaken this person to life, that's a good trade. Our affliction is for the comfort and salvation of others. There's a second benefit. He says, if we are comforted, we are comforted for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings, which we also suffer. So if we get comfort, it's so that you get comfort and so that you learn patient endurance. The goal of our comfort is not just to make us comfortable, to enjoy the recliner life. The goal of our comfort is to steal us, to endure. It doesn't come to us to make it easy. It comes to us to give us endurance, to hang on. I read it again this week. Suffering sanctifies. God tests us in order to refine us. That is absolutely true. The Lord uses suffering to loosen our grip on temporal and earthly attractions, to deepen our love and affection for Him. But He also uses suffering to equip us for ministry. Suffering isn't just personal, it's corporate. It's given to me so that I can serve you. It's given to you so that you can serve me and the rest of the body. Our suffering is not without purpose. Our suffering is not just about receiving care. Our suffering is to prepare us to serve others. Personal suffering also produces steadfastness. This is a most remarkable statement. Verse 7, And our hope, Paul and Timothy, for you, Corinthians, is firmly grounded. Now remember, this is the church that was attacking him that was living in sinful rebellion, he said, we are confident of this, knowing that as you are sharers of our suffering, so you also are sharers of our comfort. What's he saying? We know that you are in the body of Christ, you're united to Christ, and you're one with Him, and we are one with another. We are in fellowship with one another. It produces... An assurance of salvation and a steadfastness and a perseverance. So let's think about some implications. We're known for being a loving and caring and church and ministering to others and comforting the church. Can we just say, let's excel still more? And let's excel particularly in comforting one another. How are we going to comfort with excellence? From some of the things I spoke about a few minutes ago, here are some implications. Comfort suffering sinners with the hope of the gospel. That's all they got. If someone who is not a a believer in Jesus Christ and their sin is the product is producing in them suffering, then they need the gospel. And anything else we give them will fall short of what can really minister comfort to them. Remind sufferers of our eternal hope. You know, sometimes we just need to be reminded of how short life is and how long eternity is. Actually, I guess I should say how short life here is because life is eternal for everybody. But the time here is short. The time for us in heaven is long. Pray with and pray for sufferers. Read and minister God's Word to sufferers. His Word is far more influential and effective than your word. Just read his book, and people will be comforted. Remind sufferers of the Spirit of God to help them. Use your spiritual gifts to serve sufferers with practical needs. Be with sufferers. Practice the ministry of presence. I picked up that phrase probably 30 years ago, the ministry of presence. And it just stuck with me. Just be with them. Weep with those who weep. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Do that and you'll never go wrong. And watch for people who are hurting and needy. If you're paying attention, it doesn't take long to find a hurting, suffering, needy person. Watch for them. Even go outside your normal circle of relationships. I'm going to share something with you i've been given, <clears throat> excuse me i 've been sworn to secrecy for about two years, and i 've been given permission to speak to you about one sufferer today a dear brother who is a precious friend to me and to our church. Some of you are aware that Pastor Dan Kirk at Calvary has been suffering for a couple of years was something that he affectionately called brain fog. Just struggling to think about things, remember things, process, remember details. And um, about a year and a half ago, he was given a pretty hard diagnosis. And he has carried that, wrestled with it. In God's grace, they changed that diagnosis a few months later and said, you're suffering seizures. They put him on seizure medication. He changed his diet. There seemed to be some measure of help for a time, but symptoms progressively got worse. Last month, he and his wife, Chris, went to Cleveland for testing. They came back. They were pretty sure it was one of two things, neither of which, frankly, were good solutions. And he received confirmation this week, ironically enough, It was the first diagnosis that they later rejected. So he told me this week, he said, that first doctor, even when she was wrong, she was right. And the diagnosis is early onset Alzheimer's. About 30 minutes ago, he resigned as pastor of Calvary Bible Church. He is 58 years old. He tells me all the time. He said, uh, I look older than you, but you are older than me. (laughs) And he's right. I'm a year and a half older than him. And the Lord has seen fit to lay him aside. If you were to talk to Dan today, you would say, what's the big deal? There's nothing wrong with him. But it is severe enough that he has already given up driving. And today he gives up his pastorate. He and his wife were grieving. He told me this week, he said, it's the hardest thing I've ever had to do. Yet they're hopeful in Christ. He told me Thursday, after he got his diagnosis, he said this, we are following the good shepherd. So we are on the right path. Amen. How can you comfort this sufferer? Well, brothers pray for him. Some of you have had family go through that. I don't know if you've had a family go through it that young. That's pretty remarkable. He told me this week, he said uh, on Thursday, he said his life expectancy is 2 to 15 years. It's not long. So pray for him. Pray for his church. His church is suffering. They've been hit with a bomb. The shepherd now needs care. As part of my conversation with him about a month ago, we anticipated that this was coming. Um, He asked if I would come to his church on the 21st. He's resigning today. He's going to preach next week, and his last sermon is the 28th. And he's asked if I would come and minister to his church on the 21st. So in two weeks, I won't be here there's no place I would rather be on any given Sunday than this place, this pulpit, this church with you. But that Sunday, there's no place I'd rather be than there. To minister to my friend and our dear brothers and sisters at Calvary, Um, one of the elders I talked to this week said, we just need you to come and give some ballast to a ship that's been rocked. And uh, we want to point them to Jesus, who is adequate to comfort them. And that's what we're going to do. So pray for this sufferer. It's indicative, isn't it? That if somebody like that suffers, there's just suffering all around us. And Christ is adequate. You go to the Good Shepherd and He won't steer you wrong. He will treat you well. Father, thank You for the morning. Thank You for Your comfort. And even while we weep, we know the truths. We know you're sufficient. And we trust you. Pray for our dear brother Dan. He's taught at our conference many times. He has counseled some of us. He has counseled me. He's ministered to us and we've benefited from him. And we love that church because they're like-minded. They love Christ. They preach the truth. And would you be Dan's comforter this morning? And would you be the comforter of that church that has seen their shepherd laid aside unexpectedly this morning? And Father, would you comfort us in our afflictions? You're adequate for Calvary Bible Church. You're adequate for Grace Bible Church. You're adequate for us individually. Might we rest in that and be confident in that? And as we are ministered to by your comfort, might you equip us to care well for others. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.